Welcome to the Media Mavens podcast, where you'll hear the most compelling, provocative, and real conversations with industry leaders and innovators in tech, sports, and entertainment with our host and CEO of well-known PR firm, Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Axis Entertainment and your host for Media Mavens podcast. I'm here with Phil Ashcroft. Hey, Phil. Hey, how's it going? Good. Is Siri going to crash and hijack her podcast again? Well, she's eavesdropping, clearly. She butted in the first two times. Let's see if she can do it the third Maybe time. Maybe she has a good memory. She knows who our guest is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what I'm just going to say, speaking of our next guest, just before we bring him on, memory-wise, I just chatted with you two hours ago and mm-hmm. your Siri a few times. Did you forget that you changed shirts? Did I forget I changed it? You changed shirts. You had a dark blue one on like an hour ago. So I thought maybe memory-wise, it slipped your mind that you had to dress up again for this podcast. Yeah, but that's what happens in between things. I just changed shirts. That's so Hollywood. We have like seven outfits a day. Then we forget what we wore this morning. And then we end up on the red carpet at a party wearing the same outfit as we wore at another event five minutes ago. Is that what Uh, this is about? We're so Hollywood. So <laughs> uh, Hollywood, our memory lapse and fashion and what we say, which means we have an awesome guest today, Dave Farrow, who is a Guinness World Record for having the greatest memory. Dave, welcome to the show. I just like literally. Hey, everybody. There's a lot of fun so far. I'm having a great time. <laughs> it's because Phil let Siri hijack. See, he remembered to let Siri know. Mm-hmm. Can't come back. It's so good having you on our show. This is what I love about having podcasts. Sometimes we just forget we're on a podcast, you know? A lot of fun, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm going to remember now forever that I'm sorry can sound like, hey, Siri, apparently, <laughs> to, uh, to computer, to AI learning, and they're going to take over the world. So I got to remember that for when the world Sorry, is not sorry. is machine over Siri off. <laughs> oh my god this is so awesome okay one you're from canada which i love too like the guinness you are a two guinness world record holder correct yeah yeah so i want to let you know right off the bat uh, i wasn't born with a great memory i actually was diagnosed with adhd and dyslexia when i was a kid i went after the guinness record because i went after i basically went on a quest to try to figure out my brain to kind of simplify it i uh was not happy with the so-called solutions I was presented or the options I had. And I just kind of took it upon myself to kind of figure out my brain. And I developed kind of a method to study that worked really well for me. And I got better and better when I mastered memory techniques and then started inventing more. And I decided to go for a Guinness record. And then a number of years later, I broke the record again. And it's still actually held for the last 10 years. It's one of the... I'm sorry. Do people make notes? I'm Siri. Choose the voice... (laughs) Siri and I have a question for you. <laughs> Forget Phil. It's, it's funny. Do it's people not make, me. It's just a people, computer interface. <laughs> do people make that joke? Did you forget you won the first one, so you reapplied for the second one? Uh, that, actually, that's a new one. I have I've heard <laughs> a lot of bad memory jokes. That's actually pretty good. I, I, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, um, was, that was really Siri's question, not mine. No, well, no, but the, the thing was about it is when, when somebody hears you're in the Guinness Book of Records, they think that you're you know born with some natural gift or something. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people get intimidated, especially when I you know go to, go to colleges to speak or something like that. The students are like, oh, how can I relate to this guy? But, um, the, you know, the simple fact is I use uh, brain hacks. I use a series of methods. I shouldn't say series at this point, <laughs> <laughs> but I use a bunch of, of methods of techniques to think about information in a different way. It's as simple as that. Now, what, kind of, what, what kind of brain hacks? Like, can you give us an example? Sure. 
right off the bat, one thing you can do right now, uh, next time you blank out, there's two things that I want you to wait, try. Wait, I'm doing. sorry. I forgot what you just said. Aha, okay. Nice. See, there's too many good jokes. Okay, keep going. If you're ever, I know, I know, memory, memory is such a big part of the human condition. It lends itself to tons of humor. So if you ever blank out on a, you know, like, like kids on a test or say somebody's, you know, putting you on the spot and you're stressing out, what's happening in your brain is your brain chemistry is actually interfering with your ability to retain and also recall information. So what you want to do is interrupt that process of blanking out. And the best way to do it is actually to look up. And I mean, physically, like take your eyeballs and stare at the sky for a few seconds. The weird thing about it is there's a bundle of nerves behind your eyeballs called the optic nerve. And we know from fMRIs and and other tests that by looking up, it sends more energy to the visual cortex of the brain, the kind of the top area of the brain, your higher brain functions. And it improves your memory, something like uh, 30%, like a tremendous amount. So so your optic, okay, I know a little bit about optics. Right. If you come up from a surgery, if you're just like, shit, what was his name? What was I going to say? You look up and it breaks that optic. Um, it, it breaks the yeah. Well, flow, but the best way to think of your optic nerve is is if this was like you know you cut out my head a little bit and you see the eyeball is right here, right behind here would be where the optic nerve yeah, is. It's That's quite brain, large. Yeah. We don't see it on uh, pictures of the brain. We, the pictures of the brain, if you notice, it kind of starts here and goes down. Yeah. That's where the optic nerve is. It's kind of like the graphics card in your computer. It pre-processes information right. before it goes into your computer. I don't want to get like too medical gnarly. Sure, sure. On the well, podcast, long, long story but, short. But, but I need to ask you a quick question on this. Sorry, sure. I'm going to hyper-focus. Card counting now? Are we getting into card counting? No, no, we're going to card <laughs> count in a second. But I'm, I'm going to obsess over the optic nerve just for a quick second here. Sure, sure, sure. Because I did have a brain tumor removed like two or three surgeries and I was wrapped around my optic nerve. So I was super lucky, healthy, perfect sight came out, you know, besides the shed for a little bit, but the optic nerves and people like, you know, no, it's not like brain damage, but it was my optic nerves. And I'm not saying if I forget something that's from the surgery, that's not the case. I'm like, I'm smarter post-surgery, but so I'm trying to figure out where the optic nerve connection is to looking up. This is where you lost me. Yeah, so... So we don't know exactly why it happens, but it turns out that the direction you point your eyes, it's kind of like it tells your brain where to focus its energy. So when you look up, you're focusing on memory. Now, it makes sense because if you look up, you're also blocking out all distractions that might be in front of you, right? So that kind of makes sense. And that's natural. Somebody asks you for directions, you'll stop and go, oh, let me think, right? If you look down, you're most likely talking to yourself or trying to work something out. And uh, it depends on who you talk to or what study you look at uh, as to like right and left and and things like that. But essentially, the optic nerve kind of tells your brain what to focus on. And I'm very glad to hear that that you had that removed and and you sound like you're one of the lucky ones. That's fantastic. Yeah. You, don't, you know, you don't have any you know eyesight damage or anything like that. That's fantastic. Very lucky on this one, but it's, it's yeah. interesting because every you got a powerful brain that. yourself. Look at that. Yeah, I just you know superpowers after that. And, and okay. also, you, it should be noted that a lot of researchers consider the optic nerve a part of the brain. It's it is, really yeah. semantics because it, it it works hand in hand with the brain. And and some studies show that like it may be possible that that a lot of the optic nerve is doing some of your thinking or and or processing of visual images anyway. Oh, it's totally correct. Give me give me just okay. We've got to cut the medical conversations. But my I had the chief of neurosurgery at Cedars, but I had a chief of optic neuro surgery thing together yeah because there is a big connection of your optics and everything and this could be a whole different medical conversation on memory with us but like i just wanted to make sure because i think it's interesting when just to look up take you know like kind of just your eyesight to read like rebooting Mm -hmm. yeah and and it's theory she interrupts us 
Yeah. And it's really interesting. We think of, of so much, uh, so much of our brain is dedicated to our senses, like our visual and auditory sense. And it all kind of comes together. That is, if you imagine yourself walking around, you're affecting the motor functions of the brain, but you're also affecting your visual centers. You know, it's really fascinating when you dig into the minutiae. But I mean, back to the brain hack, just, you know, our natural tendency when we get depressed or we're put on the spot, we look down because we're embarrassed. If you fight that tendency and look up, you're going to improve your memory and, and you don't have to do anything else. A couple other things that do help are like a, a deep belly breath. When we get nervous, we tend to breathe through our chest. So your, your chest is going, <sighs> that actually tells your body that you're stressed out and it uh, takes blood away from your brain. It puts it towards your heart and other things that might help you, you know, fight off a predator that, you know, our ancient caveman ancestors would need that in order to handle stress. But today stress comes in a different form. So, you know, being aware of that, those two things alone actually have dramatically improved college students' test scores when I speak to them and, you know, in my course. And that doesn't even get into the cool stuff where you can you know, memorize a thousand digit number by linking it together and memorizing all these names and, and, and you know, facts and figures and cards and everything. Just, just the basics of understanding, you know, a little bit of brain chemistry and a, and a couple of brain hacks makes a huge difference. Nice. Okay. So and you kind of trained yourself to remember things and you have all these little brain hacks of what to do. Explain what Guinness record is on memory. What, ex how, what exactly huh. entailed that and gave you that title? Right. Well, when I first went for it, there was actually only a handful of Guinness records for memory. So I went after the one that I thought I could go for, which was memorizing decks of playing cards. The odd thing is when I first saw it, it was a rather old book. And I thought it said six decks of cards. And I thought, oh, I can do that. And I'll tr I trained and I practiced. I did like a charity event. And then when I actually memorized and recalled six decks of cards for, for a local charity, I, I raised like four grand for a charity. I was just a kid. I was like 19 years old, you know, knowing these techniques. That's when somebody gave me a brand new book, the Guinness Book of Records, and I found out it was 40 decks. And I was like, holy crap. Well, I've come this far. I might as well go the rest of the way. And I, I firmly believe if, if someone else is able to do something, then I'm able to do it. Yeah, I just but, have but, to know but how. Every deck of cards is the same. The king, queen, ace, one, two, three, four, you know. They're not in order. They're all shuffled together. So, so the game of memory when we're little, you turn over an apple, you got it by the apple. Remember? No, 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 no. Actually, I, I should explain. Yeah. So what, what you do is you take all the playing cards, take them out of their cases. And then we use shuffle machines. And I had four volunteers. I'm not allowed to touch it according to the rules and all on camera and all that stuff. And they uh, shuffled them all together. And then they broke them up into different packs of 52 just to make them easier to work with. And then I had to look at them. I could look at them only once, you know, all 52 cards. I wasn't allowed to repeat even once. And uh, then I had to recall it with less than half of a percent wrong. So 0.5% mistakes was all I was allowed. It's the most strict record of its kind. So, so in the out order of the you turn record, me, wait, so if I have 52 cards, the order that I turn them all over, you just turn, look, turn, yeah, look. I would say six of clubs, four of diamonds, six of hearts. I would have to say it exactly. And I will tell you this, out of the 3,068 cards is my current record, which is 59 decks of cards. I only got one mistake. And but I'm only allowed like something like 24 of them. So it's it's a very, very strict wow. rule. And as a result, a bunch of other people in the world of memory, there are other people who practice this. They've all tried to break it and, and no one no one has so far. <laughs> you know? yeah, so let's just skip ahead here because I'm sure. trying to ask you, how is that parlaying to our next trip to Vegas? <laughs> yeah, we are on. Absolutely. Let's go. Next CES. I'll be there. That's great. Yeah. So we're going to do a live podcast on the floor with you at a jack black duck table but seriously let's chat vegas right now because that has got to give you i mean i know there's laws and rules 
But come on, you just that has to give you some advantage over. Absolutely. I mean, having having a good memory, having a good memory gives you a huge advantage in a lot of games, especially card games. Yeah, but don't be blackjack. In blackjack, yeah, blackjack has is a very specific thing. I used to card count, and I did very well. I actually wrote like a little ebook about it. Yeah, essentially, it's actually a lot easier than memorizing cards. To be honest, you just have to keep track of a couple of numbers. So we have you have one number in your head that you're always keeping track of. That's your main your main number. So typically, most of the systems, all the math's been worked out ahead of time, basically, and you just have to count up or down depending on what cards you see. So if you see a low card, generally you'll add one. So if I see like a, a two, three, four, five, six, I'll add one. If I see like a ten jack queen king, uh, I'll minus one. And it's the it's the minus plus the additions, and some of them. There's a little bit of argument as which ones you should not count in the middle, but they don't matter as much mathematically. Anyways, the point is, when the deck is very positive, okay, that means that you've seen a lot of low cards. You have a high chance of having these these tens, you know, ten jack queen king come out, and that greatly increases your chances of beating the dealer. Mainly because the dealer has to stay uh, at a certain point, and you like you can hit on a sixteen if you want to. You know? That would be the opposite, because like normally when I'm beating up there, it's like 11, 12, 13. I'm like. I keep thinking well, low cards and I get a 10 and I bust and then I get so mad. Well, see, the thing is, if, if the dealer gets a 12, he has to hit. And if there's a high chance of 10s in the deck, he's much more likely to bust. So, yeah, the math really is that like there's an old saying in counting cards that you don't have to win the hand. You just have to beat the dealer. So it's actually more a game of being able to tell when the dealer is going to fail more often statistically. And uh, the counting just basically lets you know when your chances are good, so you bet more. So that, that's all the counting does, is, is you, you are able to predict if you have a good shot and then you raise your bet, uh, you know, in a way that doesn't look suspicious. And I, I did raise my bet in a way that apparently did look suspicious because I, I split two tens, but like the count was so good. I knew I, I got a 20 and I got a 19. It was great. And the dealer busted anyways. It was great. But I, I had I had a thousand bucks on the hand. So I split it and I had two thousand dollars. All of a sudden, you know, I'm getting four grand back. And then I get a hand on my shoulder from the pit boss saying he wants to talk to me. So <laughs> Yeah, but, but, but the, the thing about that is that there's just some very highly intelligent people when it comes to numbers and memory. And you don't know from one or the other what's going through their head. Good day, bad day, three, vodka's yeah. down or is on the street. They can't really do anything so it cracks me up yeah, no no they, they can't they can't do anything against you by law but they can kick you out they can ban you they can you know, this is vegas's way of keeping their money there's Just actually a detective agency there's a detective agency called the griffin detective agency that tracks you down sends letters to your house gets the irs after you they want to discourage you even though they can't by law do anything but in the 70s actually there was something called the candy store they call it Basically, it was illegal to kick out a person who wasn't cheating for any reason. So you could have card counters there and you had to deal to them whether you liked it or not. And that's when they say the candy store was open. But then they shut the candy store down and now they make it look like card counting is is bad. It's really weird in today's day and age of like income equality and stuff like that. You'd think that the card counters would be seen as like kind of Robin Hoods, like they're just using their brains and going against the big uh, casinos that are, you know, just taking money from people. So <laughs> that's a whole different podcast i need to have you on i think our next <laughs> podcast i will tell you eventually i got tired of the card counting because like you can make good money but it is very boring in in reality it's actually more like being a drummer you have to keep a beat you always have to keep the count and if you lose your count you basically wasted your whole time and you could lose a bunch of money right so 
I mean, you know me, I, I run I run a couple of businesses. I, I'm a speaker. I travel. Uh, I, there's other ways I can make money and, and in some ways, you know, a little faster or at least well, on par with that without well, anybody wanting to break my kneecaps. Well, we're going to move over <laughs> to like what the memory is really about and how it affects us. I just our next podcast, FYI, is going to be in Vegas at CES with you, okay. Dave, on the floor. But, oh, but, yeah, but you know, obviously you're not going to you, you, you're not going to use that skill set to go hang out at a craps table or blackjack table in Vegas, where like this memory thing, like you're applying that to business, to everyday life. I mean, how is this helping you? You know, whether it's achieving successes, getting through your day, feeling stressed easier. I mean, how is this being applied to everyday living with you? Yeah, so the method I developed is is unique. It's not like other uh, memory courses. It has, uh, you know, new techniques. And I should actually say it's more of a memory and focus program. So the focus is basically, I I figured out a simple method by which anybody can achieve very, very high levels of focus. And basically today we would call that the flow state that you can kind of get into the zone at will and then get out of the zone whenever you want. And it's actually the secret behind my Guinness record. I was able to get such high accuracy because I was able to stay focused throughout the whole time. And everybody who's tried to break the record kind of lost focus and had more mistakes. And that applies to every area in life, whether it's like answering a thousand emails and you just get back from a trip and you got a lot of piled up, you can go through work very, very quickly. But the memory techniques also give you a huge advantage in work. I, I can't tell you, I've, I've had so many, so much feedback from people who just, you know, usually like they're in their 40s or something or 50s and they're worried about their memory and they just want to do something to train it. So they start using the techniques. And the first thing you do is try to memorize people's names. And there's some people who were terrible with names. They memorize the people's names who they worked with. And then, of course, they spread out and, you know, the people who are on that floor and then maybe the floor below. And there's this one great story of a guy who was an insurance company in Canada and he was just doing that very thing to improve his memory. Then they downsized. They fired like a third of the the staff and he was plucked out. Everybody he worked with was fired. He was plucked out and put in charge of an entire team, even though he was not his credentials didn't you know, speak of, of management. And it was because he remembered everybody's name. Everybody said he had leadership potential. You know, his name kept, kept on coming up. So people notice, you know, when you're smart, they notice when you're able to have facts and figures off the top of your head. And uh, yeah, I got to say, knowing memory techniques and, and, and having this system is, it's kind of like a secret weapon. It gives you this superhuman ability to learn faster. You know, if you have a new software program, you can come up to speed in, you know, a week when other people are struggling months later. It just it just gives you a huge advantage. I mean, probably the show Suits is a great example where you got this, you know, genius guy who doesn't even have a law degree, but there's but he's able to memorize all the laws like the, the night before. It's very much like that. It gives you this huge unfair advantage in, in a lot of arenas. I think I need that skill set. That's at ferromemory.com. You've got the affiliate link and everything. Yeah, no, I just think it's amazing. I'm just sitting listening to you. It's fascinating because I think when we multitask, we have so much going on that mm-hmm. we're trying to do so much. I mean, we're just, we're human. Mm-hmm. At one point, we're going to forget something or keep moving along so quickly. We leave yeah. something behind. Yeah, it's a good point, sir. How, how do you feel about multitasking, Dave, in terms of memory and focus? Yeah, actually, yeah, the, the, that's, that's one of the things that I, I tackled uh, first because being ADD, I was terrible with that, you know? Sure. And I, of course, like everybody, you know, whenever you, you fail at a task, you think you're the only person who ever have done this, right? You don't realize this is something that affects everybody, but that's why I developed the, uh, the focus technique. And I can actually describe a basic of how it works. I don't want to be cryptic here. Basically, your brain is the most powerful computer ever conceived of. It still far, far exceeds anything that we've built. But, you know, in the words of neuroscientists, it has a terrible battery. Uh, Essentially, you're operating at your peak performance ability for maybe six to 10 minutes. Now, I know that sounds kind of of depressing for a lot of people, 
But that's evolution, actually. You're only supposed to have like your brain takes a lot of like it takes 30% of your oxygen, takes a lot of fuel to run, you know, all the sugars go to your brain. Like that's why you feel tired when you're studying, even if you haven't like even if you've, you've been well rested. So your body is very, you know, very cautious about how well it uses your brain power and your brain kicks in when it needs to kind of to handle a crisis. So that's that six to 10 minutes of like superhuman ability. And everybody's had that. We've all had that in the zone feeling. The problem is it fades very quickly and you can take coffee, you can do, you know, you can guilt yourself, stress out. It's not going to change simple brain chemistry. There's chemistry without going into the science of it. There's chemistry in your brain that keeps you awake. There's chemistry in the brain that helps you fall asleep. As you do cognitive function, the wake up chemistry kind of goes away and the fall asleep chemistry builds up. That serotonin builds up and you feel tired. What I developed was kind of like interval training in the gym. I uh, developed a way to increase the intensity of tasks, but do them for very short periods of time. It's almost like gamifying it. So like, for example, I'm writing my book. I've got like 60,000 uh, 60, words written so far. And I did it in five minute bursts, you know, five minute chunks at a time. And I take a short break in between. And this is kind of oversimplifying it. Like you have to go through the exercises to see kind of the full extent of it. But it's the key is to make it very intense for a short period of time. And then your brain likes that. Your brain is like, yes, this is what I'm good at. I'm good at handling a short, intense thing for a short period of time. And then I have I have a discernible end. I, I can stop when the timer stops. And even if you give yourself a couple of minutes break after that, you can go back and be at 100% again. And right. it's it's kind of so... What I want you to think of your brain, the way it likes to operate, whether you like to operate it or your boss likes to operate this way is another story, but it likes to operate like an on or an off switch. It wants to be 100% or nothing. And you find this on cognitive tests for, for grad students where if you force somebody to study for a few hours, whatever they studied after that 10, 15 minute mark, it's down to like 10% recall. And that's why most students have to repeat something 10 times just to get it or understand it once. It's because they're fighting their brain's natural tendency to want to take a short break. All you need is that short break long enough to rebalance your brain chemistry, and then you can go back uh, very powerfully. And it does a bunch of other things like, you know, it stops your procrastination, helps you, you know, handle tough tasks that you're, you know, nervous about and stuff like that, because it's a, you know, anything that you bring down into a bite-sized chunk works really well. So it's been a real secret weapon for me and a lot of my students. So just to clarify, is it kind of shorter than something like the Pomodoro, you know, the 15 minute chunk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like five to six. Yeah, it's really, well, yeah, Pomodoro is, uh, I think, a half hour to 45 minutes typically, but sometimes 15 minutes. Yeah, it depends. They're starting to make it shorter and shorter because they're realizing that does work better. So in my data, I see uh, six to eight at the most. But in the break times, you can literally shut your brain off. In the break times, you can do a passive task you can still read or, you know, play a game or, you know, uh, read a novel that you like or something like you still do something in the meantime, but your brain can't be, uh, it has to be like a high intensity, then low intensity. But then you'll find if you, if you shorten that even down to that shorter period of time, then you can go back up to that intensity and you, well, essentially this is the feedback we get is that students, they can study for like four or five hours, but at the end of it, they're not tired. They go out, they can party, they can have fun. You're not exhausted because you never pushed your brain past its comfort zone. You always got a little bit of cognitive work done, then you rebalance, you got a little bit done and then rebalance. So it's almost like that feeling of, of you know, when you start a task and you're all fresh and new and, and bright eyed and bushy tailed, it's almost like you never truly lose that. You just, when you start to lose it, you just get it back, start to lose it, you get it back. And you can do that for hours. And uh, if anything, the one challenge is that you don't want to do it too close to bedtime because it will um, it will interfere with your ability to sleep. 
does build up a lot of adrenaline and other, you know, it helps you wake up, helps you stay alert. So that's, that's the only downside that I recommend not to, for people to do to, you know, leave yourself a little time afterwards, because you're not going to crash after studying for hours, you're going to be kind of wired. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And for a kid with ADD, it was a dream come true, really. You know, no Ritalin, no, no, no drugs needed. It was able, was able to focus and pay attention and, and get, I mean, a world-class Guinness record done, much less, you know, all the other things. I've, I've done a bunch of other things since then, just so you know. <laughs> What's that rule? Let me say, like, at least with advertising, we can use from press releases and media interviews with our clients. You always have to repeat the name of your company, repeat the message you want that the person take away at least five times, because whether they actively are thinking about it consciously or not, if they see or hear it down the road, they'll connect it back from memorizing it, because five times is the rule of thumb. Yeah. On a take correct? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. In in memorable marketing techniques. Yeah. Getting that's why I'm in I run a a, a marketing company right now, Fair Communications, because it, it is related. If you can get customers to remember you, then your job is over. I would say that the five to six times that they have to hear your name or hear your product that can be shortened if you have something very engaging. So if you say something like a viral video, obviously everybody wants to do a viral video, but even if you just put a little creativity into your ads, something that's funny, something that engages people. Another popular thing with uh, landing pages are things like quizzes or activities that people can do rather than just opt in, I get something or passively watch a video. Anytime you can engage the audience, then you don't need as many repetitions. It's kind of like the difference between memory techniques versus like rote memory. You know, you're still getting them to memorize you, but you're just using a little creativity. Totally. Just changing a little bit. What, you know, obviously we're kind of hopefully coming out of the end of yeah. a, a bit of change recently, right? And, uh, you know, there's this notorious kind of foggy brain that's come through COVID. Uh, do, do you have any insights on that and what it is? And anything Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I experienced it myself. I'm not immune to this. Just to be like, I, you know, get into the Guinness Book of Records once and then never have problems, right? I, I got to tell you, I, I'm not immune to this. There's Well, there's two kinds of brain fog that came from COVID. There's the people who actually got COVID, and it looks as though there are neurological issues that have come as a byproduct of that. And that's another story. There's, there's a whole bunch of science, and they're still researching that. But all the rest of us, we seem to have a shared forgetfulness and a brain fog that has come from just long-term isolation. And, and we know this from uh, studies of like astronauts and like there's thing like coal miners and like different different studies of people who have been isolated for long periods of time, military people, things like that. And there's there's certain things that wear on you. Hopefully, the previous studies of the other areas that I talked about turn out to be true. And once you get back into the regular world, a couple of months, that'll, that'll kind of lift. If you guys want to lift that now, then anytime you do something uh, mentally active and you try to learn something new, something outside of your comfort zone, that'll lift the brain fog because your brain sees that as... Uh, as part of its job. So let's say, you know, you never learn any languages and you just try to learn some French vocabulary, you know, whether or not you remember any of it, the attempt tells your brain, hey, I've got to learn something. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to get out of this brain fog time. Now it's time to get back to work. Isolation must be over pretty soon. we got to prepare. Like that's the sort of survival mechanism that you have that a lot of people don't tap into. Interesting. And does that have any correlation with kind of long-term brain you know, like we think as we get older, our faculties maybe aren't quite as sharp as they used to be. Is is, is this some similarity? Yeah. You know, there, there's been some fascinating studies on this <laughs> and also my experience with my students that, so first off, at any age, we have feedback from people, uh, you know, in their 90s and in their teens. 
and tweens even, that uh, memory techniques can, can make a huge difference. So at, at any age, it's never too late, never too early. That's the first thing. I should say, we haven't been able to teach kids younger than six or seven. That's kind of a magic time where you're kind of constructing stories in your head. They have to at least understand that. So that's just a, a little caveat, just so I don't get any trolls like telling me this. But uh, the other side of the coin is if, if you do feel like your memory is going, one of the good things about that is that it's, it's, it's a sign that it isn't. So what I mean is, if you believe that you're being forgetful, if you're aware of your forgetfulness, that's actually a sign that it's not Alzheimer's. And uh, the reason is that if anybody's actually, I've had family members uh, that have had Alzheimer's, and if anybody's ever experienced that, I feel for you, it's a really, really tough thing. But you probably know this better than anyone that as the brain starts forgetting in a clinical way, like something more than just the forgetfulness of age, and it's Alzheimer's or something like that, then the brain actually starts covering its own tracks. So it's not the person who forgets to pick up milk. It's the person who forgot that they had milk in their fridge and they have like four of them, but they don't think they have a problem. It's like, I didn't forget. No, I like a lot of milk or something like their brain will will do something to make them think that they're still normal because for some reason, it's a signature of the disease that the person is not aware that they have it. It's a really odd thing, but usually friends and family bring, bring people into, into doctors. So not to get too dark, you know, into Alzheimer's and everything, there looks like there's a vaccine on the horizon for Alzheimer's, very exciting stuff. But for the rest of us, if you feel like you're getting forgetful, that's actually a sign that it's, it's not too late to change. If, you, if you're aware of it, that means your brain is not covering its own tracks. You can't actually change. And brain training will actually do a lot of good for you. Now, I will say this, that the, the apps or the, the gamification apps, gamified apps are not the best thing for training your brain. It's most of the time, it's a waste of time. And I will also add in things like Sudoku and, and crosswords and things like that. They are useful if you've never done them. If it's your first time playing that game, like if I you know, taught you chess and you never knew how to learn chess, then you have to learn new things. You have to learn the rules. You have to learn what the pieces do. That challenges your brain. But once you get to a certain point where you uh, you know, you can complete a Sudoku pretty easily. You might not be an expert, but you're pretty good. Or you can, you know, play a chess game without thinking about it. Then you're not actually challenging your brain anymore. You can do that for hours and hours and hours, and, you're, and it's not giving any sort of what we call systemic benefit to your brain. The systemic benefit comes from learning something new. So I suggest people learn a language. They learn a musical instrument, something that will really challenge them, some hobby that they've always wanted to know. But it has to be something that you've you've never tried. If you've never touched the piano, you know, pick up a music book and and just you know, just for an hour every day for a month, try to learn how to play the piano, you'll probably still be terrible by the end of that month. But you'll your brain fog will be gone, and you'll be sharper and and other things will stick more it your brain really likes to be exercised. And there are some experts, I agree with this, this pool of experts, but it's still controversial, just like in, in the field of neuroscience, but there are some experts who actually believe that age related memory loss is a training issue more than anything. It's not so much a genetic issue. And that is to say that if it's not Alzheimer's, it's not dementia, it's not the actual damage to the brain, then it's just the fact that we've, we haven't had to learn anything for the last like 20, 30, 40 years, right? It's been a long time since we had an exam or we had to study the night before to memorize something for the next day. So you, people you who are think? lifelong learners, what's that? I'm sorry, Dave, do you, just before I, before I forget my question, that's so funny. I'm all excited here. I'm getting on. Sorry, I'm, like, wait, I'm, I'm so sorry. But like, I, I want to stop for a second and interject here because before you, we get too far along, because you're talking about using your brain. You're talking about challenging your brain, right? Yeah. Just to reiterate, backtrack a second. But technology 
I feel is making it harder for us because I always joke around. My smartphone makes me dumber because I literally am lucky if I memorize two phone numbers because all the ones I call, talk to every day, I just call Siri. If she's listening, I just go on. I look it up. I redial my, my car, smart car, auto connect. I feel like everything on a daily basis that makes it easier, quicker, faster to move through our days to be productive makes us dumber because I forget yeah. numbers, not because I'm getting older or whatever. No, no, no. I, I literally, so for example, I don't know how many times, I, you know, I'm sure I text or call Phil a lot. I couldn't tell you if he's a 213 I, I I rely on my technology so much. And yeah. is, is that to Phil's point a prohibitor or because you said gamify as well. That's why I interrupted you. Sorry. Talk about gamifying some of these games and stuff are not good for you. But we rely on technology. And then <laughs> Do we ever, yeah, even Siri wanted to be on the call, you know? <laughs> she did. She had her moments. But like from education, kids are on yeah. you know, on learning online now. We're on our cell phones. There's so much tech at your fingertips. Yeah. Where's the challenge anymore than on our brains if everything is so easy to ask Siri or Google something? Well, you're absolutely right, actually. This has even been studied. It's called the Google effect. You can Google it, yes. It was the University of Harvard and I believe Duke. They uh, they did a study, and this has been repeated a ton of times. Essentially, we know what we know about memory is that in the 80s and the early 90s and such, people's memories were stronger. And into the 2000s, there's been a steady decline. And it's something like 30% decline. So the biggest determiner actually is phone numbers. Phone numbers originally were seven digits long because the average, quote unquote, average person could hold on to seven digits after hearing them or seeing them only once. Now, today, though, well, first there's the area code, but on top of that, the average person can remember five or six. So our decline has been quite stark. And we actually attribute it to uh, smartphones. We just, we're just not having to remember, even, even holding that phone number in your head. Remember if you remember address books and stuff or Rolodexes, remember those things? It, just holding in your head long enough, like read it and then type it in. That was enough brain training that we were smarter back then. But I want to actually use this as an opportunity. You know, technology is doing so much for you. So now get ambitious. You know, if you've ever wanted to learn something, you know, now you've got all this extra brain power that you could be applying to, right. you know, a hobby that you've always wanted to learn or a musical instrument or something. So, well, you know, kind of turn this around. To that point, you know, one of the metaphors is, you know, brain's a bit like a muscle yeah. and, and you use it. And, and, and I wonder if, if we're not using the muscle in that way, is the muscle going, have we, are we, do we use it in a different way now? Does it, does it excel in a, in a different direction or, or is it just like sagging well, and wasteful? Yeah, the thing about nature is you only do what you have to do. You know, right. that, that's why that's why our waistlines are probably a lot larger than our caveman ancestors, right? Because they don't have to be skinnier. We don't right. we don't have to chase things down. So we're kind of having a comeuppance a little bit where most of our health problems do come from sedentary lifestyle and all that stuff. But I'm not here to solve all the world's problems. But I will say that it is true that th- there's two major things that you could say in the aughts, the 2000, the 2000s has brought the brain. And that is that we are more stressed than ever before. Mm-hmm. We're, we're releasing larger amounts of cortisol. We know this from, from studies. We are stressing ourselves out more and we're medicating ourselves more for that. And uh, we're also not exercising the brain. We're not really training it. We're not really using it to its fullest extent. Those right. two things, if you counter that, 
if you start learning things every single day, if you yeah. try to do meditation and you lower your stress or you do something wonderful, like take my course, which does all of that, then uh, there's a whole bunch of other benefits to come. Uh, we talked about, you know, you can make more money, people respect you more. But there's also like when you train your brain, you sleep better. You know, you're you're calmer and you're also seen as more competent to to other people. You're just sharper. You can answer something and answer a question within a few seconds without having to um and ah, right? You you seem to have the right words. All these little things people notice and it affects every area of your life. So those two things, if you can lower your stress and you know raise your brain power, that is learn, you know, train your brain to to learn things new quickly, those two things they affect every aspect of your life, you know, from relationships to you know everything. And, and we're, we're also, as I understand it, we're, we're exposed to so much more information. So in yeah. some ways, I, I forget the fact, but it's something like, you know, we, we see more in a day now than our ancestors saw in a year and before that, yeah. a, a lifetime almost. So it, it kind of feels almost like there's a link there somewhere, like not cognitive overload, but like, you know, we're just like we're sucking on the fire hydrant every day. Yeah, that's a good. I, I love the fire hydrant analogy of information. It's it's not a matter of like you know back in the early days of Google, they thought you know the internet is a pool of knowledge and we're kind of sifting through the pool. And no, it's a fire hydrant. It's a it's a fire hose. It's coming at you. Right. And yeah, it, at one time people used to say that they were they were in a. I mean, you remember remember this from in the past, like the you know two thousand and on, like you know after the millennium and stuff. There's this idea that oh the world is changing, and what we didn't realize is the world is changing into a state of constant change. Mm -hmm. There, There is this, it's not just change and then there's a new status quo. There is change into change into change and there's more piling up. So this may reach some sort of, you know, Kurtzwellian uh, uh, singularity and then, you know, we'll all be androids or something. I don't know. But uh, they're, they're definitely, people are having difficulty coping. And, and the question is whether or not it's changed for good or for ill. It just seems like the pace of things is going so much faster. Things are very competitive. But yeah, that's that's causing the the stress and also the, you know, people just aren't training their brain because that takes effort and, you know, feels like, you know, living is much effort. I'm almost feel like I'm convincing people out of it, though, now. But everything <laughs> does change when, when you look at it differently. It feels like there's even more of a need for, for what you do, yeah. given the exponential growth, like to your point, the change and change and change. It's like we're going to have more information. We're going to need mm -hmm. to process more information. You have to remember better. And I guess my question at the end of the statement is like, how do you see that going forward as, as like, if this is the fire hydrant and next is going to be like an ocean coming at you, how does brain training and memory techniques kind of help with that? You know what I actually see, this is my prediction, and this is not self-aggrandizing, it has nothing to do with my course, but I will tell you that what I've seen is I think there's going to be a rise of autodidactic people. It's starting with, you know, YouTube and online learning and stuff. There is a whole bunch you can learn on your own. And there's a lot of people questioning the institutes of power, whether we need, whether we need, you know, college degrees and things like that. And I say that as a person who gets hired by colleges to teach yeah. students, but I still want you to hire me. I still love you guys. But there's there's going to be a place for the self-learner. And I think there's going to be a place for the lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. And that's where memory techniques really come in. Schools don't, they teach you stuff, but they don't teach you how to learn that stuff. So pretty much whatever you came, if you're well off or your parents were well off and they hired a tutor, maybe you learned a few tricks. If you read some books or you came up with your own strategy, that works. But I can't tell you, I, I've met you know, thousands of students that are in college in their first year and they are drowning. And they were you know, A-plus students in high school, but the strategies they were using there 
aren't working in this new well, area I, and I, no I, one's taught them how. I think the thing about college is that you're trained to regurgitate back what the books are telling you to pass the test and you're just trying to bring so much in. But if you look at some of these great leaders, college degrees are not life learning because we're getting like Phil said we're getting so much yeah. news. We're like we're like we're and a lot of us are guilty of overthinking, overcomplicating because we have so many yeah. channels of news and you know, COVID politics. There's so many channels online, um, texting, mm-hmm. there's you know, the YouTube, the videos, the streaming. There's so many places to get our news. We're constantly shifting. Well, but you said that, but you said that, but maybe some middle line truth or consequences, but I'm going to get your opinion. We just overload ourselves with so much, which is kind of why I'm a big yeah. fan of AI and artificial intelligence. But at the same time, I think it's a really weird, it's a balance as we go into the future. We've got to always Content is king. I hate that they always to say that, but it is true. The knowledge is power, but we also rely more on technology to drive that knowledge and intel to take it off our plates. But then we have to find something else to fill that gap. And I just think, I mean, I think as we evolve, we're going to be smarter because you have more access to stuff. And and I'm yeah. not saying like you're saying, look, we want you to get booked across the board <laughs> with colleges, but you can't. Based, oh no, they, they know so, this more than anything. Well, you yes, can't base your life on universities and school books. Yeah. Out there, well, life is what's giving you the whole perspective of how to yeah. handle what to remember and stuff. You want to know what the biggest trend in uh in college learning has been. And and I, I do think there is a value to being able to quote unquote regurgitate stuff. That is, you have to be able to learn, you know, what the definition of all the components is in a computer before you can start to you know, repair it yeah. or build it or something like that. See, you have to have what's called a base of knowledge. But the biggest trend in universities has been creating people that can learn on the go, that can be lifelong yeah. learners. It's one of the biggest challenges. And they try to make all these students into leaders. And the problem is that the system was never really designed like that. You know, it was set up to to teach, hopefully, obedient kids a bunch of facts. And like you said, regurgitate them. And now they're trying to, they have to realize that the world doesn't really value that anymore. They value self-starters, innovators, creative people, and people who, who can have a body of knowledge but still apply it to different situations, right? So what I try to do when I teach students is I try to teach them how to gather information quickly, how to learn the basics quickly, then so that they can apply it to different situations. And that, that I think, is the future. And if we give people the ability to learn then they can they can learn forever. You know, the new mm-hmm. software program comes out, they can teach it to themselves. You don't it's yep. not about improving the system, it's about empowering the learner with their own yeah. abilities. It's like the whole coding with technology, getting girls to code, getting kids to code when they're yeah. younger. And it's just like, I hate that we are out of time because I feel like this conversation <laughs> has it's another 30, 40 minutes before we even get close to running out of steam or forgetting what There's we're talking about. Too. Definitely. <laughs> you you want to double down on this conversation, huh? Just I do. I, yeah. I, think, <laughs> I, I think there's a part two on this. Um, we do need yeah. to double down. It was so amazing to have you on. And like literally, and I'm not just saying this, I think we could continue. So if somebody doesn't cut this podcast, this is going to be a novel of stuff with you. Dave, where can people go on to what website to take the class, to learn more, to get a hold of you? Sure, yeah. Our online course is at pharaohmemory.com. Actually, if you want to remember pharaoh, this is my logo over here. You see, it's an F with an arrow coming out. Ah. F A R R O W. Pharaoh. Yeah. F arrow, Pharaoh. Huh? That's a little <laughs> mnemonic technique. I'm nice. kind of proud of that. 
And uh, so it's Faro memory. And that's that's the method that I developed. It has some traditional memory techniques as well as the innovations I came up with. And there's really nothing like it. And we have like live streams that we're doing with students. We keep in touch with them. There's all sorts of extra bonuses and stuff. And we've got, you know, some special deals for your uh, your viewers. So uh, tune in. And thank you very much. No, it was so good to have you on. I, I think I'm just going to make the call here and say we want you back. And it may be live at CES. We're all back again, but we definitely want to get you back. I don't want the Griffin Detective Agency after me. I don't want them to watch this. (laughs) Definitely. I can't think it was so amazing. Dave, definitely keep us posted on how things go with the books and stuff. We're going to have you back. But uh, until then, we will definitely stay in touch with you. If I can remember who I talked to on a podcast today. I'm so impressed with you. I'll let you know. But it was so good having you on, Phil. It was Thank such you. a good podcast. Are you remember this? Or do we need Suri to say goodbye to us? Suri's listened to everything. Don't worry about it. AI, it was so good having you guys on, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or want to download past episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, please visit MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.